There are few foods that are as tightly bound to a place economically and culturally as Scotch whiskey is to Scotland. Making scotch is a complex process and one in which it really matters where you do it. I sat down with Skip Clary, who spent years in the Scottish whiskey trade, to learn what goes into making the legendary drink. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. trade in Scotch whiskey in 2018, according to the Scotch Whiskey Association, was a little over $6 billion. Every drop of that whiskey was produced in Scotland, otherwise it can't be called Scotch. It represents about 2% of Scottish gross domestic product. If GDP were spread out equally among the population, whiskey would gross around $1,100 per Scot. If you've ever been to Scotland, you'll know one thing about whiskey distilleries. For the most part, they're a long way from anywhere. There are a handful of large distilleries around Edinburgh and Glasgow, of course, where the neutral grain spirits that make up the bulk of blended scotch are made. But the stuff that earned the reputation is, for the most part, made in the hinterlands. Many of them are scattered around various islands. Many more are down winding roads, tucked behind mountains, or on remote peninsulas. And before we get too far along here, praising this kind of thing as an excellent model to take for rural economies, which I am about to do, let's acknowledge that almost all of these distilleries scattered across the heather are currently owned by massive multinational liquor companies, Bacardi, Pernod Ricard, and a handful more. So it's not as though the main beneficiary of that $6 billion scotch market is feisty old Angus McTavish in a Tam and Harris tweed. This is 21st century global capitalism we're talking about. They're selling images. What those images are built on, though, is very real. There are two resources involved, water and barley. Most grains don't grow well in northern climates, and all of Scotland is above latitude 55. Barley does. And the water, especially away from the major industrial centers, is clean and soft. Scotch whiskey is literally a transformation of remoteness, high latitudes, and bad weather, into something worth considerable amounts of money. Of course, there's a lot of history behind it as well. Whiskey has been a centerpiece of Scottish identity for as long as it's been made. For its first few hundred years, it was mainly distilled by what in the U.S. we call moonshiners, always out of malted barley, always in a simple pot still, the only kind of still around. Robert Burns, whose poems feature countless odes to whiskey, began his career as a taxman tracking down illicit stills. The modern whiskey industry's real beginnings can be traced to the Excise Act of 1823, which legitimized distillers who paid a small fee and kept up on their taxes. The need to specify what exactly is and is not scotch came after the invention of the column still, which enabled much larger production runs and made it easier to use different grains in the ferment, and suddenly the character of the end product could be much more easily manipulated. 
The lighter flavor was perhaps more appealing to people from less grim climates, but what really made Scotch whiskey's name across the world was brute force in the form of the British Empire. Facing a huge increase in demand, the whiskey industry had a choice. It could allow Scotch whiskey to be whatever the market wanted it to be, or it could force the market to accept its definition of what Scotch whiskey was. In the same way that French winemakers developed the appellation system to protect names like Burgundy and Bordeaux from becoming meaningless, in 1933, Scotch whiskey was defined in British law. The definition has subsequently been refined and clarified over the years, but the important parts have remained the same. It has to be made entirely within Scotland using certain processes and certain ingredients, and in some cases in certain locations, or else you don't get to call it Scotch whiskey. This kind of thing isn't nearly as common in the U.S. We tend to take the line that regulations like this stifle innovation and make things unnecessarily hard on individuals. If somebody wants to age their whiskey in stainless steel or tequila barrels or pour honey or maple syrup or hot sauce into it, why shouldn't they if it tastes good and people will buy it? Which is fine as far as it goes, but then witness the widespread confusion about what exactly the word bourbon on a bottle means. Many people assume that bourbon has to come from Kentucky and will usually add that the law dictates it. Well, the law dictates no such thing. The law dictates that bourbon has to be made from 51% corn and that it has to be aged in charred new oak and a few other things, but nothing about Kentucky or Bourbon County or any other place except that it has to be made in the U.S. I can open a bourbon distillery tomorrow in Bear Cove, and as long as it meets the other requirements, I can call it Bear Cove Bourbon. I can't do that with scotch. Now, this makes it more difficult for me. After all, I'd get a lot more credibility and could charge a higher price if I could call my stuff Bear Cove Scotch than if I had to use a more generic descriptor like whiskey. But it makes it a lot easier on the customer looking at shelves of bottles. When they buy something that's labeled Single Malt Highland Scotch Whiskey, they can have a pretty good idea of not just what's in the bottle, but how it's made, where it's made, and the tradition it's made in. And it protects people who are willing to put in the work of doing things the better, but harder and more expensive way from ignorant greedheads like me who just want to make a quick buck. In many ways, it's understandable that we Americans are more resistant to the kinds of heavily regulated food labels that are common elsewhere. The majority of us simply haven't been here long enough to have worked out what kinds of food are best produced where. And the country is massive. Winemakers in Champagne have had hundreds of years to figure out what grapes do best there, and the whole region would fit neatly within Ketchumac Bay. Winemakers in all of Oregon have had only a few decades. Scotch has 600 years in a very small country behind it, while bourbon has well under 300, most of it scattered over a huge region. Once we start to zero in on what works in a place, though, these kinds of defined terms can add a lot of value to products. The base of many rural economies is food production and processing, and wherever those places are able to tie their name to high-quality food, they thrive. Let's actually, let's pour a little bit because I want yes, to start please. out, I want to start out when we did the red wine episode, we talked a lot about how to read a wine label. Sure. And so what I want to talk about is basically the same thing with scotch and okay. how to read a scotch label and what do the right. words mean? Okay. And 
So we're sitting here, and the first thing that I've got here is a, uh, is it Glen Farkless? Yep. Uh, which says on the label, Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey Aged. 12 years, distilled and bottled by J&G Grant, Glen Farkless Distillery, Speyside, Scotland, product of Scotland. Yeah. Okay. So we all know that scotch can only come from Scotland, right? Correct. Okay. So, but, but tell me about the rest of the words on this label while I pour us a, okay. a wee dram. Yes. Yes. A dram being a very open-ended measurement uh, in this case. <laughs> so a Highland whiskey is from it's the largest whiskey region in Scotland. It covers a lot of territory. Speyside falls within that as a separate region because historically there were dozens upon dozens upon dozens of distilleries along the Spey because the water was so good and also the aging process there, the maturation that takes such a long time is different in Speyside because of the weather. What the, uh, what what's the nearest sort of town? Uh, Inverness is is the closest big city to Speyside, and then Aberdeen's over on the other side of that north coast, um, and that also qualifies as Highland. Uh, Dufftown being one of the areas that gets a lot of whiskey recognition, but Highland is is a pretty big region. It includes coastal areas, uh, whiskeys like Oban. It's not an island whiskey, but it is definitely coastal and it is pronounced Oban. So Highland whiskeys are really hard to tie down in terms of saying what's, what's typical and what you should expect. But in general, Highland whiskeys are going to be inland. They are going to be sweeter and not nearly as peaty because they didn't historically use peat as a fuel source, whereas the the islands certainly did. They didn't have much in the way of trees there. If you go to Isla, for example, you won't find much in the way of trees, but you will find an island covered in peat bogs. So um, that's what they had to use for fuel uh, during the malting process, more of which will we'll take care of later. So if it's if it says 12 years on the label, it has to be a minimum of 12 years old. In the case of a blended whiskey, um, we'll, we'll cover one where there's an age statement given on the blend, and that means even the grain whiskeys that were used uh, in the blend have to be a minimum of eight years old. Which and so... So with a, with a single malt whiskey like this that says, you know, like 12 years old, mm -hmm. is that an... Because like, okay, so with port... That's the minimum age of, of a port that can go in there. With scotch, is that that specific whiskey is 12 years old? Yes. Okay. Um, in the case of Glenlivet a few years ago, because they had so much whiskey, they had the problem that they had overproduced and their warehouses were just bursting at the seams. And so the, the Glenlivet 12 that you were getting was more than likely 14 years old, but they didn't want to mess with such a successful brand. So... They still said it was 12. So you're not going to find any 10-year-old whiskey in a 12-year-old no. label. No. But you might find older in certain cases. Yep. But with a single malt, like, they're not going to be blending different age classes. Like, they won't be... Will they be blending, like, 20-year, 21 into their 12-year-old? They can... What, you, what you're starting to see now is a lot of whiskeys that they, they're, they're referred to as NAS, no age statement. So, good example, the Jura Superstition didn't carry an age statement, it can still be considered a single malt in that it was made 
by a single distillery and it was made with pure barley malt, no other grains and no unmalted grain. So Superstition had some younger whiskeys in it, but it also had some really old whiskeys in it, made for just a beautiful, beautiful whiskey, but uh, sadly they discontinued that one. So. so single malt on the label, what does that mean? It means that it is made in a single location uh, and aged in that location. And it has to be made with pure malted barley. No other grains and no unmalted barley. Is there a minimum age at which you can make a single malt? Three years. It has to be a minimum of three years to just be called a scotch at all. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. The single location thing is is the big deal. That's that's what makes it single malt. Okay, so. and then and so what is what does blended mean when you see it on on a blended label? whiskey? Uh, it's it's going to be a, a a mixture of uh, a certain percentage of malt whiskey, depending on the quality and price. Uh, it can be anywhere from twenty to forty percent malt whiskey in a blend. Um, the better ones obviously have more malt, and the grain whiskey that's used is made differently than single malt whiskey. It's it's not made in a pot still. It's made in a column still, uh, much in the same way as an Irish whiskey is done. And so what they'll do there is make a, a spirit out of sometimes corn, definitely some other barley. Uh, I think in some cases they'll even use some wheat. But it's a fairly neutral spirit until it's been aged in wood for a while. But the cheaper blends are going to be three-year-old grain just so that they're allowed to call it scotch, and that's it. So they make a, a, a really basic whiskey, and then they age it. And then after they age it, then they start to blend it with the more expensive with the malts. malts. Yep. And then what they'll do once they have blended it, uh, the process is called marrying. They just basically will put them either in a larger wooden tank or in barrel. Uh, in the case of this Isla Sky eight-year-old that we have here as well, um, that that is aged in barrel the whole time. No, no messing around. That's what makes it one of the better ones. So this is this is Isle of Sky. Yeah, that's actually the name of the distillery. Well, it's or a blended it... whiskey. It's the name of oh, it's oh. the brand name, and uh, this blend is different in that it carries an age statement. So all right. of the whiskey in there has to be a minimum of eight years old. There okay. will be some that are older, um, but the youngest whiskey in there can't be any less than eight years old. So this is like this is like a port age. Yeah, and and yeah. so so that's that's. Is that a, is that Scottish law that if a blended whiskey has has an age, it's got to be it can't nothing can be younger than everything has to be okay. So all is, the grain whiskey, all the malt whiskey has to be at least that age. So this is eight years old. Yeah. Okay. And definitely a high quality blend, a much higher proportion of malt than the the usual suspects out there, like teachers or Buchanan's or. Some other blend what, like and that. Sorry, what was the minimum portion of malt? Forty uh, percent on this one. I mean, um, I mean, just in general, to be labeled a blended whiskey. Twenty percent malt is is the sort of minimum that you can get away with and okay. still have people want to come back and buy it again. Um, that's but, just the stuff that's like some plaid on the bottle, and it's yeah, called yeah, <laughs> yeah that's <stuff. laughs> and it, yeah, cost, and it costs twelve dollars. Yeah, that's the stuff. <laughs> um, so that's uh, that's blended whiskey, and it, and it's still the largest market share of Scotch whiskey. But single malt has been growing leaps and bounds in the last few years, and it looks set to continue. And eventually, it looks like it will overtake blended whiskey as as the most uh, successful so type of Scotch. It's always it's my understanding that a lot of the like a lot of the, even the a lot of the really famous single malt distilleries um, sell 
at least a bulk, if not the majority of their whiskey, specifically to like the big blended. The blending trade. Yep. And that, that's been it historically. You know, a lot of people will see a, a, a single malt on the shelf and they go, oh, I've never heard of that before. And it's like, well, if you've ever had Johnny Walker Red or Johnny Walker Black, well, that whiskey goes in there and right. it's a major part of it. Chevis, they use a lot of different malts. I think Dewar's uses a fair number as well. Whereas like the Isla Sky eight-year-old, primarily Talisker from Sky, definitely to give it some some PD backbone. And then they rely on a couple of Speyside and Highland distillers. And that's that's about it. And it's it's been that way for a long time. The blended companies, obviously, they, they try to make a consistent whiskey from year to year. Yeah. But it doesn't really seem to me like the single malt distillers have the same sort of concept like, you know, in French wine where every year is going to be different. It seems like they're also aiming for a really consistent, like you don't notice like, you know, if you're drinking Macallan, 12 year old Macallan, it's pretty much always going to taste like 12 year old Macallan. Yeah. Is that a philosophical thing uh, or Mm -hmm. is it just kind of the nature of making the nature of the beast because the, the pot stills are going to be the same size and shape um, year in, year out. Uh, the the grain that they're using is not going to, through the whole malting and distillation and all that, is not going to change year on year. With blended whiskeys, they have to adhere to a house style, as it were. And so people who are responsible for keeping that consistent have got amazing noses and palates. I mean, they tiny little percentages of change they would notice it <laughs> they're they're amazing at what they do uh, and they're worth a lot of money to these to these blending houses um, so basically once a once a distillery has a grain bill and a recipe for a particular whiskey and a you know a, a method and a process yeah as long as they dump x amount of barley into their mash tubs at the beginning yep. And follow the process, they're going to wind yep. up with the same whiskey consistently. The bigger variables tend to be with casks. It used to be the case that sherry barrels were a dime a dozen because the sherry that was sold in Britain was shipped in barrel from Spain. And so there were all these empty sherry casks laying around, and the Scots, being quite smart about money, they're like, oh, we'll take those. But now there aren't so many coopers in the world anymore. So the Spaniards are hanging on to their sherry casks for, you know, dear life. And that, that's when they decided to start going for American bourbon barrels on a lot of them. It was, it was just expedient. For whiskey, you don't really, if you're going to age it as long as they do scotch, you don't want a brand new barrel. There's far too many other compounds that will come out of a fresh cask that you don't really want in a 20-year-old scotch. It's going to completely overpower it. Whereas bourbon, yeah, you use new barrels. They're part of the whole bourbon process. It's a sweeter whiskey, and it ages shorter and in a much warmer climate. And they only use a bourbon barrel once, right? They don't reuse them at all. Yeah. So scotch distilleries, they'll keep reusing the same barrels over and over As long as they have something to offer the whiskey, yeah, they will. But it is going to be a variable. And so over the years, when you're aging a whiskey for a good long time and you're about to do a bottling run of, say, your 14-year-old, they will go around and, and taste each cask because they are going to be slightly different, especially as the whiskey gets much older. Um, the differences are quite amazing. And so they have to kind of do their own blend, as it were, but it's all their own whiskey, so it's not a blended whiskey as such. We had, uh, we had bottled a 30-year-old whiskey for um, the Canadian market. 
and it was a single barrel. We did the whole bottling for them and it was lovely. And when it sold out, they wanted another one. It's like, well, it's not going to be the same thing, not even close. And we tasted through a number of different 30 year old casks and several of them were just undrinkable wow. because they had not, they had not used a good enough barrel for a 30 year aging process. They had probably not expected that it was going to last that long. They were, huh. they were probably expecting they were going to bottle it at a much younger age, but with distilleries changing hands and barrels getting forgotten in the corner of warehouses and stuff like that, you never know what you're going to run across. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So the younger, the, the younger, the scotch, then the more consistent it's going to be from, from batch to batch. Yep. Huh? Yep. Um, when you start getting into, you know, 20, 25, 30 years old, there's, there's going to be a, a noticeable variation but from one barrel to the next, um, which is why you see a lot of them just bottled as a single barrel and that's it. And it, nobody expects them to be just like another one. And is a single barrel like that, has it been, has that particular whiskey been sitting in that barrel the whole time or do they top yep. off? Do they top off with, with no. more like in, you know, like in sherry making where they keep refilling right. the barrel? That, that's a different process. But no, they don't do that because the whiskey you're putting in that barrel is not going to be able to, you won't be able to put an age statement on there if you've put younger whiskey in to top it up. But I mean, do they take like, you know, say you have two barrels of stuff that's 25 years old and right. now they've, and now that both barrels are only like three quarters full, you, you. They leave them alone. Okay. Yep. So once a once a whiskey goes into a particular barrel, it's going to live in that barrel. It's staying there until until they bottle until it. it's time to bottle. And yep. how long does it? How long do they do they put them in the barrel straight away, or do they give them time in like stainless? Beforehand? No, they, they when it's distilled, um, once it's cooled down, it, into the barrel it goes and into the warehouse. Okay, um, so let's. Well, that's a, that's a good that's a good uh, moment to let's. Why don't you just walk us through the process mm. from from sacks of barley okay. to the bottle. Okay, so just a, a little historic thing here. The word whiskey actually is um, from the Gallic or Gaelic word for water, ushka, U-I-S-G-E. And in the 18th century, that was changed a bit, and eventually people just started calling it whiskey. And it was probably brought to Scotland from Ireland, the process and the knowledge of how to do it, around the 15th century by the monks that were coming over. But likely whiskey was made long before then, um, especially in Ireland. So what you do, you you get your your barley, and Scotland's got a lot of it. Uh, to make malt, you steep your raw grain in, in good water. Then you spread it out on what was traditionally a malting floor. It was like the upper level of a barn or something, and it was just this big open space with, you know, little gaps in the floor so that airflow could get through. And what happens is when the grain is damp and warm, it will start germinating because it thinks it's going to be a plant. Well, the cool thing there is all these starches that are stored in the in the grain as it as it came off the plant will start turning to complex sugars, which makes a much more interesting flavor. When that process takes place, though, it starts to build up a lot of heat. There's a lot of energy getting released. And so traditionally what you would have to do is walk along the, the malting floor with a malt shovel and turn the grain over to dissipate the heat and to keep the airflow going. Um, you don't want it to get moldy. What also happens is that certain enzymes start getting created in the, the germinating grain 
and those will be needed later to convert yet more starches to sugars, but that's going to be in the, in the fermentation process. After about a week, the, the germination has gone as far as it needs to go. You've, you've gotten as much complex sugar out of each individual grain as you're going to get. So that's the point where they need to dry it. And traditionally that was done, again, in the malting floor, they would have a lot of heat going and that would start to dry the grain out, stops the germination process, and that's, that's it. Now you've got modern maltings where you've got these massive kilns and these big rotating drums. And so they can, they can control the process very, very closely. And so now they're using kilns to, to dry the grain. You want to keep the heat below about 160 Fahrenheit because those enzymes that I mentioned, you want those to survive. And so that's, that's what they do. And you can also at that point, you know, in a modern malting, you can get peat smoke in there and you can set how many parts per million you want your malt to have at the end of the process. Historically, they would just burn a smoldering peat fire in the downstairs of the barn and that smoke would just get into the grain as a result, which is why Isla whiskeys are are so smoky historically. Once that whole malting process has happened from sprouting to drying, you then will move on to the stage known as mashing. If you're a home brewer or if there's home brewers out there, they'll know this stage quite well. You basically grind the grain. It's called green malt at that stage. You grind that into a fairly coarse flour or grist, and then you steep that in, in water in a mash tun, and they will add the water at three different stages of increasing heat, going from about 150 degrees Fahrenheit at the beginning to just below boiling at the last, and that will extract lots of different sugars from the grain. And this is something that that in home brewing, you know, I've done it a little bit, and yep. depending on what, I'm a really bad home brewer. Mm-hmm. All my beer was that I ever made was just whatever. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. But but I did mess around with it enough to sort of like where I know the process. And one of the things that they always talked about was whatever the temperature of the water that you're mashing like it makes a huge difference really on, the, on the flavor. So is that where a lot of the, like each each distiller is going to be doing its own mash temperature schedule and that's going to eventually show that up as character? That will have an effect. Yeah, it certainly will. There are some things that are that are pretty much fixed though as far as like temperatures. You want those enzymes that were created during the malting process to survive as long as possible because the whole time you're doing this, they're turning even more starches into more sugars, which you're going to want when you when it comes time to ferment. And also, the more complex sugars that are in your your mash that you eventually ferment and distill, the more complex the flavors are going to be. Like in homebrewing, you know, you you'll use like a certain amount of like really dark roasted malts. Sure. Uh, is that something you ever see in Scotch, or is it no. mostly the, it's just, the real it's just light straight straight malted malted grain? They don't. Um, other than adding peat to the to the specification, they don't actually cook the grain as okay. such. Um, yeah, just it would make a it'd probably make a very strange whiskey. But I don't <laughs> Wasn't know. there isn't there one Scotch that's black? I can't remember the name of well, it. Well, Black Bowmore was one of them. Yeah, I don't know. I do remember. I remember seeing one at the Clackag Inn in Glencoe. They had a black Scotch, and yep. I drank it, and I cannot remember the name of that one. Yep. Yep. Uh, I've had a few drams in the clack egg myself. I, I, I know that place very well. It's a nice place to stop. The other thing they'll be doing is actually stirring 
you know, if you're if you're home brewing, um, doing a whole grain recipe, you, you definitely are going to want to keep stirring it as well. And that keeps the enzymes doing what they're supposed to do. Um, what you wind up with is uh, wort, W-O-R-T. And that's the sort of sugary uh, liquor that's that's created from basically brewing your, your grain. Um, at this point, they want to cool it down to just below 70 Fahrenheit and put it into um, these containers called washbacks. What happens there is that's where they start the fermentation process. They'll add yeast to it. The yeast starts chewing on all that sugar that was created. And it, that will result in alcohol. But as well, there's a, there's a set of flavor compounds called congeners. And that's a really important development for, for scotch. That's where you, you're going to have some of the most interesting flavors start to get created at that point. You also get CO2. So if you're ever visiting a whiskey distillery, don't be the person who leans over into the, look into the fermentation tank and take a deep breath. You'll faint. I've <laughs> seen it happen. It's, it's, not, it's not pretty. And for about two days, the fermentation is going on. It is, it is just foaming like crazy. I mean, the yeast are busy. And so they have these little spinners uh, that, that keep cutting the, the, the head of foam to stop it from overflowing. And so at that point, you, so sorry. Mm, so yeah. these are uh, these are all open fermented. Yeah, there's so much positive air pressure coming out of there with the CO2 getting created that they don't have to worry about any contaminants getting in there. Um, just doesn't happen. And when that process is complete, you're looking at anywhere from six to eight percent alcohol to work with. And that's where one one of your variables is going to be. They might use a particular kind of yeast, like you know sour mash, for example, uses a different kind of yeast than than other other types of whiskey. Deciding how much alcohol you want your fermentation to achieve is also going to have an effect on the final flavor. And do most of these places do they rely on uh, commercial or uh, scientifically developed yeast strains, Definitely. or are they, or are they just like we've been doing this for five hundred years and we're going to rely on wild yeast? They don't rely on wild yeast because they don't want that much variation. Once they find the yeast that works and has the the profile that that they're looking for. They'll stick with it. They don't want to change anything. They're uh, even to the extent that if a still pot gets a dent, you know, in the course of its life, when they get new still pots to replace the old ones that are getting worn out, they will have them dented exactly like the last still. <laughs> they really do. They'll come along, and there's a guy who really knows how to damage a still pot artistically. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. They're. I don't know is it superstition or anything, but I mean, the, the this faintest little ding, they're going to have to recreate that for the new ones. It's, well, I it's, mean, I guess like you're not going to know until 12 years later if it mattered. So yeah. why not just, yeah, just <laughs> stick, stick to with what, what you know works? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then you've got your your fermented wort at about 6 to 8%. That's then going to get put through a pot still, which is just a big copper pot with a a swan neck on it, and then a condenser or a, a coil, copper coil. Is all scotch, even the stuff that's destined for going into blended whiskeys, like it all goes through a pot still, or do some of them use column stills? They will only use a pot still for the malt portion of the whiskey. But I know that there are some, some pot still grain whiskeys out there, but generally speaking, it's going to be industrial column stills. Um, 
And like and, Irish whiskey is usually column still, yeah, right? Yeah, there's a few notable exceptions, like uh, the Red Breast is a pot still, Green Spot is a pot still. Um, and those are going to be much more pungent, uh, aggressively flavored Irish whiskeys. So, like, so can you describe briefly the, you know, what, is, what is a pot still versus a column still? Right. A pot still is, is much simpler. It's just basically a, a, a sealed copper pot that you put your stuff in and you bring it almost up to the boiling temperature of water so that your alcohols will boil off and then get up over the top and into the condenser. Column stills are, uh, they were invented by a guy named Aeneas Coffey, C-O-F-F-E-Y, and it's a lot of people just call it a coffee still. And they do what's, what's known as fractional distilling. So along the height of the column, you have these various collecting trays. And the reason for that is that different alcohols have different weight. And so only the, the lightest, most delicate alcohols are going to make it all the way to the top because the heavier ones, the more pungent flavored ones, they're just, they're heavier, literally, and they, they stay near the bottom. So like in the case of Glenmorangie, tallest still pots in Scotland, very, very light, delicately flavored whiskey. Oh, so the height of the, the, height of the neck has a huge... It's massive, huh. massive difference. The shape of the still as well, but, but height is, is going to make a big difference. But with a column still, you can collect every weight of alcohol all the way up through the column, and you can you can decide how much of that you want in your final product. And it runs continuously, so if you don't like what you're getting, you just keep it running back through until you can collect enough of what you want. And because it runs constantly, it's very economic. You can create an awful lot of alcohol with one of those things in a fairly short space of time much easier than with a pot still so in general the pot still is going to wind up with more of the initial liquid yeah and it's going to have like a more characteristic definitely flavor more, of its own definitely i've tasted uh what's called new make spirit it's the it's the clear stuff that's basically right out of the still and i've tried the new make spirit at glenmorangie which just tasted like a combination of rocket fuel and dish soap it was god awful it was just terrible it needs to be aged whereas i've also had lafroig as a new make spirit and it was very drinkable as long as you added water because it was about close to 70 percent alcohol so definitely don't want to do that but it was actually drinkable but they've got these short squat little still pots and so the gnarliest heaviest meanest alcohols get all the way through into the whiskey which is why it's such a, a beast you always hear hear stories of you know like moonshiners and stuff, and and mm. what, one of the things they always say is they they get rid of the the heads and the tails. Yep. And is so so what does that what does that mean? Well, I was getting to that, but I'll tell you what. Let me uh, finish with the with the process a little bit because okay. I am going to get to that. Okay. Um, it's the last part of the distillation run that you want to deal with. So when you're working with your pot stills, the the shape, as I said, is very very important to the individual character of the whiskey. Alcohol will start coming through uh, into the condenser, but there are other flavor compounds that will do so as well. And so you want those to, to get in there. At that point, they will then move to a wash still, which separates the alcohol from the water, the yeast, any residue um, uh, called pot ale. And that final product is called the low wines. It's, it's lower in alcohol, I think about 20% maybe. Then they move it to the spirit still, and that's where things get really interesting. The four shots are the, say, the, the beginning third of the distillation run. 
that's when your most volatile uh, compounds are going to be coming out. Uh, they're going to boil off quickly because they are volatile and they're pretty fiery and there's nothing subtle about them. And those will be set aside. The last third tends to be made up. Yeah, there are still some alcohols in there, but there's also a lot of oily compounds that took longer to vaporize. You want to get rid of those too. They don't result in a good final product, but the, the middle cut or the heart of the run, that's the best bit. That's the, the best balance between desired alcohols and also a desired level of those flavor compounds. And it's, and it's a good balance. There's a lot, more, a lot more flavor and a lot fewer impurities. Although the, the flavor compounds are by their nature an impurity. Otherwise, you, right. you'd be looking at vodka. So one, so one of the biggest differences between different, not just different whiskeys, but different alcohols in general mm. is how much of the, the front and the end stuff you leave in. Like, yep. you know, like some gins have that kind of oily texture. Is yep. that because they, they have more they, of the, they the later the, run? Yep. They made the cut later in the, in the distillation run. So they're keeping more of those oily compounds. So yeah, that gin's a great example of that actually, because, you know, it's, it's all down to the individual gin distillation that that results in in gins like that and some are very delicate and some are really like you say oily but what they will do with those four shots and and the feints as they're called on the last third they will be run back through on the next batch they will just add that to the low wines that are going to get used for the next batch and then they just redistill that but the the center cut that's a single distillation and uh that's, I don't know, for me, that's, that's as good as it gets. So really they did, nice. that's, that's what they set aside and used to make the primo. The good stuff, yeah. When you've made that center cut, it's almost always coming out right at about 68% alcohol. But they've found over the years that if you put it into a barrel at that strength, it starts to draw out certain other compounds from the from the wooden barrel that they actually don't want you want a barrel to contribute what you like and you want it to take out what you don't so it, it works as a filter and as a contributor in that regard so what they will do is dilute it down to about 63 percent um and that's i don't i don't know if i'd say that's a, a modern thing but you could certainly get older whiskeys that were bottled at Oh, goodness. I had some that were 67, 68% even after aging. Oh, so wow. you can only imagine what what kind of strength they were when they first went in. Um, but yeah, they. Um, so you were talking about the, the four shots and the feints and the middle cut. And so that's that's how that has has come into play. So they're adding they're adding water. And this is always something this is something I remember from, <laughs> from being at Scotland. Yeah, is that you know, every distillery pretty much is on a, a creek. Yep. And they all talk about how the character of the water in that particular stream is like critical. It's absolutely critical. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a number of distilleries that are worried about their water sources. You know, if they're not getting as much rain as they're used to, if we do, well, I mean, in the case of the Glen Farkless, that's, that's basically runoff from a mountain called Ben Rins and the snow melt feeds the the springs they've, they've got they've got very granitic soil there and so they're they're worried if they're if their mountain doesn't get enough snow every year what's going to happen to their water table so yeah it's it, it can be a little bit precarious for some of them but. so the real the real 
terroir and uh, and whiskey making is it's is the water. The it's the water, absolutely every time. Because they're adding it straight right at the end. The water character plays a huge part because that's what you're using for your your distillation. You know, you're you're going to be you're going to be using the best water you can get consistently as part of your fermentation process, and that that's that's the big makeup of of what you have. And you're also adding it directly to the end. The end is that why? So is that why like Islas are so salty? You know, have that that salty character. Is that um, from the water, or is that's that from... the aging process? Because the uh, Isla has, uh, I think, now eight distilleries, and I think almost all of them are coastal, and so you get a lot of storms there, and uh, it it basically forces sea air into the barrels, into the barrels. Yep, and so they are going to be briny. Those coastal whiskeys are definitely going to be like. You know, if you if you take like an Oban or a Klein Leash or any other coastal whiskey like that, you can practically smell seaweed. You know, it, it really is. It's like iodine, salt, things like that. It's like it's like being at the beach. Yeah, it, it, it's it's pretty important. But you won't get a briny character from an inland whiskey. Right. Yeah. Well, this is a good this is a good segue then, because uh, can you give us, you know, just an, a, a brief overview of the major regions Sure. And sort of the character of them, because they're all, yeah. they, they are extremely, like, they're way different. Oh, yeah. You know? It's, they really are. <laughs> it's like um, drinking completely different yeah. different beverages. Yeah, it really is. Starting from, like, the, the lightest, most delicate style on up to the, the meanest, beefiest ones you can get. The lowland whiskeys, which are produced generally between Edinburgh and Glasgow in that little central belt area, they have a very different climate there. It tends to be a lot colder there than it is in the coastal regions, so they age a little bit differently. The temperature range there is greater. It's warmer there in the summer and definitely colder in the winter, and so the whiskey will mature differently than it does in a coastal region where the the temperature range is is much tighter, um, much more temperate. They tend to be uh, quite floral. In the case of Glen Kinchy or Auchentosh, and those are the two lowland whiskeys that we can actually get here. They're fairly light, fairly delicate. Heather flowers are definitely a, a signature of, of the Glen Kinchy. A little bit of honeyness to it. And uh, Pete doesn't even remotely enter the equation there. They're, Do they just not use it in the production? They, or? they don't have any peat in the lowlands. No. Yeah. There you go. So it's just historically just not been a thing there. Then you've got your Highland whiskeys, which is a, a big region. And then within that, you've got Speyside. Um, and we talked about Speyside a little bit. It's it's definitely a sort of terroir thing. They they have different weather in Speyside and different water. You know, they're, they're all clustered on the banks of the Spey River, and that's where they're getting their water. Whereas in the Highlands, you can get anything from, like, the Edradour from Pitlochry or Dalhwini, which is, is quite a, a mellow whiskey, actually, on up to stuff like Klein Leash, which is a coastal whiskey up in Sutherland, and it's, it's fierce. It's a 14-year-old whiskey, generally speaking, and, and it's bottled at 46%. And it bears little to no resemblance of the ones that are made in the Southern Highlands inland. But it's still classified as a, as a Highland whiskey. So I'd say in terms of diversity, the Highland region is you know, by far the most diverse. It can be anywhere from a, a real briny coastal whiskey onto a, a very 
delicate butterscotch fruitcake floral thing and everything in between. Speyside tends to be even more butterscotch. You'll get a lot of toffee flavors there. Again, no peat. Um, they had plenty of trees. If you look at like Glenlivet and Glenfiddich and whiskies like that, those are Speyside whiskies. And while Glenlivet 12 is not particularly challenging, it is very easily approached. It's, it's not a challenging whiskey at all. And a lot of the Speyside whiskies are, are like that. You know, the, you've got um, McAllen is up near the north coast, not far from it, but they rely very heavily on sherry aging. And that, that can certainly have a massive effect on, yeah. on the style. So um, some people like Glenmorangie almost exclusively use bourbon barrels except for their, their cask finishes like sherry or port. Or what, does, uh, what is uh, Glenfarclas's barrels? Glenfarclas because... is exclusively and only Oloroso sherry casks. That I, that's funny because as, we're, yep. as I was just thinking about this, I, yep. I, I was getting a very dry sherry yep. um almost i mean i was i was thinking a little bit more uh fino right but as this like, whiskey it's, it's gets... very it's very like almost precise like there's like a there's like a knife edge to it you yep. know it's very sharp it's very dry yeah. yep and uh and but it's still got that that kind of fruitcake nut thing going on there like dried definitely. you know like candied peel um the spice on this one is not as pronounced as it is when it gets older. Um, the 21 really lets you know it was an Oloroso barrel. It's mm. like almonds, walnuts, pecans, just loaded with all the little sherry descriptors. But um, the nutmeg character of the 21-year-old is, is kind of missing here. But it's, it's starting to develop, but it's not, it's not full on yet. There's like a, a, a little bit of like a spicy tingle all mm-hmm. the way at the end of the... Uh... Yeah, the, it like really way, comes through in the way, finish. Way in the comes finish. through way in the finish, and it is dry, like you said. It's it's got a nice dry finish to it. Yeah, and silly me, I haven't added any water to this. So okay, so what's the deal with the, the what's the deal with the well? Let's have a, let's have a brief talk about okay. this because Scotch people are very particular about what you put in your Scotch. Yep, and a lot of people over the years, the number of times I've heard, oh, never add water to your whiskey, you'll ruin it. It's like, well, how do you think they got it from? Ooh, 58 to 60% alcohol when it came out of the barrel down to 40% when it's sitting in the bottle. What do you reckon they might have added to that? <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of anything. But the the science behind it with, with water. Okay, so this one's bottled at, what, 43 usually? Uh, 43. Yeah. So when you look at the alcohol levels on whiskey, you can go anywhere from 40% on up to the cask strength stuff. Like uh, Glenn Farkless does a, a cask strength that is, oh goodness, it's close to 60%. And it's cask strength, just this is straight this came out, of the out of the cask. We no, no dilution. And the thing is, when you drink a whiskey at that strength, alcohol will work to deaden the taste buds. And so you actually end up losing a lot of the whiskey's character if you drink it at that strength. And if it's more enjoyable when it's watered down a little bit to drinking strength, then it actually lasts longer, you know, you get more of it and it's, and it's a lot more enjoyable to drink. But even with a whiskey that's, that's bottled at 40%, I still will add at least a drop of water. And the reason for that is, okay, when a whiskey has been sitting in a bottle for a few weeks, months, whatever, there's a stasis point where all the oil particles that are in that whiskey have reached a a pretty uniform particle size. They're going to stay that way as long as you're 
temperature is, is relatively constant. So when you have that whiskey in your glass, if you add literally even a drop of water to it and give it a swirl around, it's going to break those particles into a lot more individual pieces, which is going to increase their surface area exponentially. And it's referred to as opening the nose, that process of adding a little bit of water. It actually results in more aroma and more flavor rather than diluting it. I've done more blind taste presentations on that than I can count. And people are usually quite shocked when they when they see what happens. Usually what you'll get is some of the more volatile aromas will start to really open up and you start to really learn how complex that whiskey can be. And then eventually what would happen is if you left that glass of whiskey out with the water in there, barring the, the, the evaporation, but those oil particles would go back to their kind of stasis point again. But temporarily, you know, for the life of that glass of whiskey, they're going to, it's going to change it physically. And, and it really works. When you're, when you're getting a water to put in your whiskey, you want a spring water or at least a purified water rather than a tap water because tap water, especially if it's city water, is going to have different chemicals in there, chlorine being one of them. Atomically, chlorine has got a minus one charge and it will bond with just about everything around it and it will change the flavor compound's characters. So I tend to go for a fairly neutral water. A lot of folks can be a little pedantic about it and say, oh, only, only use the water that comes from, <laughs> from where the distillery is. I've well, heard, I've heard that. Yeah, it's kind of a... <laughs> kind there's of a, like, you know, there's certain levels where I think we can, I think we can use the word snob, and that's one of them. Yeah, it's pedantic. <laughs> it really is. So I've just put a little splash of water in mine, giving it a little swirl around. Oh, yeah, okay. You're getting a lot more orange peel, a little bit of raisin from the sherry. Yes, it's become much more like Christmas cake. It's, yeah. And I, well, you couldn't see this uh, out there in radio land, but, but I really added just like a dollop, just like a, probably two drops at the most. And that's all it takes. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, it totally. Really, it really changes it. And Yeah, you're not kidding. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about lowland whiskeys. We've talked about the highland region and how it's it's quite diverse and, and it's really hard to kind of pin it down on what a typical style would be. You've also got a, a peninsula on the west coast called uh, Campbelltown. Uh, that's the, the region is called Campbelltown. There used to be a lot of distilleries there and they're far fewer now. The one that we can get here, Springbank, is very well made. It will always be non-chill filtered because Springbank never installed a chill filter at their bottling plant because they're so, Campbelltown is so removed from the rest of the country. It's really off by itself. They tend to do all their bottling there rather than shipping their whiskey to near Edinburgh where a lot of it gets bottled. So we've talked about yeah. the Highlands and we've talked about the Lowlands. Uh, and Campbelltown. And Campbelltown. So and where else, is, what else do we have? So you've got Island whiskey. You have two up in the Orkneys. You've got Scapa and Highland Park. Uh, you've got one from the Isle of Mull. Talisker is no longer the only distillery on Skye. They just put one into production about a year ago that had I still been living in my old cottage, I could have watched the whole production process of getting the place built because it's, it's probably a quarter mile from where I was living. So <laughs> that would have been a nice neighborhood to stay in. But uh, but there you go. They're doing really well. Um, I'll be very curious to see what, what their uh, aged product is going to be like. 
when I was there, they, they had just built uh, a few years earlier on uh, the Isle of Aaron. They had yep. built they had built a whiskey. They they weren't actually in official production because nothing that they had was younger than I think four or five years. Yeah. So they were selling four year old whiskey at the distillery, but yep. they weren't attempting yep. to, to distribute it until it was going to be eight yeah. years old. And they've done a fine job with it. Was it was quite delicious. It is it is a lovely dram. I think they're wanting to get a whiskey distillery built on Harris, but I don't know what the what the progress of that is. They're certainly making glorious gin there, but uh, but Sky has got um, uh, Talisker and the new distillery is called Torvig, and um, that's in a just a gorgeous part of the island. And uh, I, I think they'll do really well. They got a nice crew of people working for them. You've got all those distilleries on Isla. Uh, you've got one distillery on Jura, and which is Jura, Jura, yeah. <laughs> None on the outer aisles. Um, Is there any in the Shetlands? N- I think they wanted to do whiskey, but I know they're I know they're doing vodka and gin up there. But I don't know if they're doing if they've gotten their whiskey situation sorted out yet. I'm surprised they're not doing aquavit in the. They should. In the Shetlands. Yeah, I mean, it's, I they're, mean, they're very, all Norwegian, they're right? Very Norse there. I, I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they really identify as Norse. And so the so then what is the what's the the characteristics of of the island whiskeys as opposed to the mainland? Right, uh, peat is is almost universally going to be an element. But yeah, the island whiskeys tend to have a lot more of uh, sea influence. Go figure. Um, you know, if you if you taste a Laphroaig, you're going to get iodine. You're going to get seaweed. You're going to get those almost disinfectant flavors going on i've heard that i've heard that with isla whiskeys that that it it actually matters like who's closest to to the shore like the 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 further inland you go on isla the less pronounced those flavors are yeah and lafroig's like it's like right on the water right oh yeah lafroig lagavulin and ardbeg are all within like a half mile of each other and they're all just clustered around this one little part of the coast whereas brooklady is up in this sort of at the head of this long loch and they, the weather there just is not as punishing. And so right. Bruachlady is actually an unpeated Isla whiskey. Um, they don't, uh, I mean, their Port Charlotte is, is a heavily peated whiskey, but, uh, but the, the regular signature Bruachlady is not a, it's not a peated whiskey. Kalila is practically in the water itself. I mean, you could almost throw a rock from Kalila over to Jura. It's right there in the narrows. That's what, uh, the C-A-O-L is pronounced Kull. Uh, means Kyle, um, which is a Narrows. And so it's the Narrows of Isla. It's that really tiny little sliver of space in the water between Jura and Isla. And uh, they're they're right down there. And the weather can get pretty roaring through there because it's just, it's like in this little, almost a ravine <laughs> right on the shore. And it's just, huh. oh man, it gets hammered. Beaumore is a milder whiskey. That's on Beaumore Bay, which is kind of an, if you looked at a map of Isla, it's almost an entirely enclosed bay. So, again, you can you can get some pretty serious waves coming in there, but the wind is not as bad. And Beaumore tends to be much more delicate, but they still have plenty of peat. Um, How do they have any peat left? It just keeps replenishing itself. <laughs> it just every year. I mean, if you if you go out for a walk up in the the boggy areas, I mean, there's just so much plant life. Isla is absolutely just crawling with plants. Um, which is why Brooklady can make such an interesting gin uh, with the botanist. They've got like 22 local wild botanicals going in there, huh. all sustainably harvested, and they get the locals to go out and get them at the right time, and they put it in the gin. It's I know, really and, you, and then and then I look around here in Alaska, and 
There's a lot of times where I look around at the landscape here and I go, you know, this reminds me a little bit of Scotland. Absolutely. Yeah. And there were there were times when I was living on Sky when I there was like one corner I went around in particular and it just I just thought, yep, southeast Alaska looks just like it. Yeah. The light's similar. Yep. Yeah. I mean, f- almost the same latitude is like yeah. Juneau is at 58 degrees 22. And I think that's roughly the same as the north end of the Isle of Lewis. So it's all yeah. it's all right there. Um, same kind of daylight hours, that sort of thing. Plenty of crappy weather there. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> a lot of darkness. A whole lot of darkness, um, which, you know, whiskey seems to help with that. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. My guest today was Skip Clary. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. This is the third episode of the fall 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.